1: From Commander's Palace Restaurant in the Garden District in New Orleans, we're Out to Lunch with Peter Ashuti Peter Ashuti is Tulane University's A.B. Freeman School of Business professor and director of the award-winning Birkenrode Reports. It's business, New Orleans style.
2: Hi, I'm Peter Raschuti. Welcome to Out to Lunch. New Orleans is a city built on tradition that is indestructible. We've proven this in our own lifetime. In 2005, New Orleans was as close to being totally destroyed as is possible. After the floodwaters receded, there were all kinds of plans for how we could reimagine and rebuild the city. After we vigorously debated the possibilities of green spaces, canals, and many other options, we decided that the best thing we could do was to build the city back exactly how it was. Two of the pillars of these indestructible New Orleans traditions are our historic architecture and Mardi Gras. Mardi Gras in New Orleans is more than the Tuesday before Lent. Like the tip of the iceberg, there's a big part of Mardi Gras that most of us don't get to see, the year-round activities of Mardi Gras Cruise. The centerpiece of this activity is each cruise Mardi Gras ball. If you're a woman, what you wear to the Mardi Gras ball is as important as your wedding dress and it takes just as much time and planning to design and make it especially for you. Today, the premier designer and dressmaker of Mardi Gras Balls is Suzanne Perone saint Paul. Suzanne, welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. If you drive, walk, or bike around the Garden District, the French Quarter, or uptown New Orleans, you can't help but admire the architectural beauty of the city's grand homes. Here's another thing you'll notice. If there's a for-sale sign outside of one of these substantial structures, there's a fair chance it has the name Eleanor Farnsworth on it. Your casual observation can be backed up by a statistical fact. Eleanor has sold the most expensive house in New Orleans history. She sold the most expensive house in New Orleans in 2018 and Eleanor is the holder of a host of other prestigious real estate records, including a lifetime membership of the Million Dollar Club. Eleanor Farnsworth, you are a living legend. Welcome to Out to Lunch. Thank you. Now, Suzanne, you have an amazingly impressive resume in fashion. Although you are originally from New Orleans, you spent most of your career in New York City. You designed for Carolina Herrera, Vera Wang, and your clothes have been worn by celebrities like Anne Hathaway, Jennifer Lopez, Katie Couric, and the queen of fashion herself, Anna Wittour, the longtime editor of Vogue. In 2006, for your own personal happiness rather than your career, you decided to move back home to New Orleans. Since then, you've become the go-to designer for Mardi Gras gowns and wedding gowns. Although your life is better for making the move home, comparatively few people ever get to see your creations compared to the exposure you had when you were in New York. How do you feel about working on a comparatively smaller canvas in a small market?
1: Working in New Orleans is a dream I never had. It's been more amazing than I thought. I have found that working with clients directly with a gown that is so special and unique to them for a very special and unique experience is more rewarding than any runway show I ever did in New York City.
2: So those celebrities wearing your... Uh, wearing your, your makings were, uh, were great but not the way you got to work with clients here.
1: I so value the personal relationships that I have with each and every one of my clients and that is a lot of what makes what I do here so special and unique to what I did in New York.
2: And you have to be careful you don't make the same gown for two people, right? Don't they?
1: Absolutely, you I have, do.
2: I think you get guillotined or something for that, right? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I don't make this. I don't make a gown twice. There may be elements that repeat within fashion, but I do not recreate any gown.
2: And they're so elaborate and so beautiful. How long do they take to make?
1: Well, working with anyone who's a queen for a Mardi Gras ball, we generally start almost a year in advance. Part of that <laughs> is because of the time investment in the beading, but these amazing young women who are part of the debutante class are in college, and many are not. In college in New Orleans so it's a scheduling issue as well as a timeliness of creating all the steps of the gowns this is quite a project Does a wedding ga- uh, gown take that long a wedding gown can take as long generally we don't do the same level of beating, so it's something I can take care of in a much shorter period of time the other reason I need to start a year in advance on Mardi Gras is I'm 90% of my workload is in a month.
2: That's what I would think. That's the ultimate manufacturing problem. Eleanor, a real estate agent's income is based on commission. That commission is a percentage of the sale price of a home. Obviously, it's better for an agent's bottom line to represent clients who are selling homes for millions rather than thousands. You've built a business where clients turn to you because they trust you to handle the disposition of their very valuable property but you started out with nothing, no background in business, no formal real estate education, and really no significant work experience. Looking back at all these years in sales, what would you say are the biggest differences in selling a home for a million dollars compared to selling a home for a hundred thousand? Do you have to work harder to sell a high price home or is selling a home the same amount of work uh, no matter what the sale price?
3: Well, selling a home requires the same amount of skill, work, uh, dedication, confidentiality, a small home, you would give it the same effort as a large home. You would, the same steps would go into it. You know, you'd have a floor plan done, whether it's 1,000 square feet or 10,000 square feet. You'd have professional pictures taken regardless, and the time and energy would be the same.
2: And one thing that has amazed me, the business seems so crowded. There are so many real estate agents. How have you
3: done it? well 39 years of hard work (laughs) did it but i started out 39 years ago and you build your clientele and if they trust you and have confidence in you you get the repeat business and you constantly have to follow up with your clients keep in touch and even when they're not
2: in the market for. that's correct
3: you follow up a christmas card or a newsletter or something about the market but staying in touch is primary and um My method is phone calling. I like to talk to people. I know we're in an internet society, but I started that way and I'm still doing it that way.
2: You haven't moved to text or anything Well,
3: my office has. I mean, (laughs) we still do text. But my technique is really the personal touch. I like people to feel like I'm sincere about their home and I care about their home and they confide in me about what is going on about their home it's time to reduce the owner what's going on let's do this and they won't do that in an email
2: and I have a few friends in the investment business of the same way you you've looked like you've been at a few firms but you're one of those people that actually it's just the names have changed right
3: That's correct. I started out with one company and then I moved to another company because I was working mainly out of my house and I had three young children and it was getting a little hectic. And my assistant did not want to go to the office because there was smoking over there and she was pregnant. So uh, it was time to make a move. So I was offered a position over at the rink and with another company. And I've been there ever since. <laughs> now the companies have changed, but my all office the... is still in the exact same spot. It's been was... all
2: kinds of mergers in between, yes. but it's <laughs> yes. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with realtor Eleanor Farnsworth and fashion designer and manufacturer Suzanne Perrone. Suzanne, what got you into sewing in the first place? I mean, you're it's kind of a it's a in a way it's kind of a lost art, right?
1: I fell in love with sewing from my grandmother and my mother. They both were extremely talented in sewing and design. My grandmother actually taught sewing at Country Day, and I've had a few clients whose moms took sewing from my grandmother. <laughs> my, my, my mother then also followed in her footsteps, and at, when I was younger, I was growing in a ballet company, and my mom was the costume designer, and it's something I always loved. When I was about five years old, I wanted to sew. I got a child sewing machine, and I said, I will be a fashion designer one day. It worked. And it worked. This,
2: but you didn't, as much as you may a great seamstress and a family of sewers there, you didn't come to this originally with any kind of business background. How did you learn that? And what, did you, what do you know now that you wish you had known way back then?
1: Just the experience in New York City working with so many different designers and working within the industry, seeing production, seeing what things cost, seeing what, how many people were involved in creating a garment gave me a lot of the background to set up the business and know what to expect.
2: When we think of people that do what you do, we think of uh, you know very creative folks and you know with with real ideas they can they can sketch down on paper and such, but we don't think of all the rest of the stuff that you just just spoke about like you know pricing materials and putting together that timeline. To me it's just frightening. You know, it's ideally when you're manufacturing something, you know, you've got something come and do every couple of months. You've got Seventy percent of your business coming due within a few days of each other, right?
1: We start well in advance. We stay on schedule. We stay very dedicated to meeting every deadline. Even if it's a deadline in the summer, I still make sure I meet it, even though it's for a dress that would be in February.
2: Now, do you have a big uh, wall that's got, got a giant timeline with dates on it? How does it work?
1: We have a giant calendar. <laughs> I was kind of
2: hoping you did. You both are in the top and the luxury market here. Uh, two things one is it all old money or is there new money coming into town
3: I find new money coming into town my last two sales have been uh, to parents that have bought places for their children and also I sold a large place in the French Quarter as a second home so I find we are getting some new money coming in.
2: And new markets. I mean, that's not what you would have expected off the top of your head.
3: No, but I find uh, some of the largest homes they've sold recently are to out-of-towners for second homes.
2: I wish my parents had bought me a home. I'm sorry <laughs> you brought that up now that you think about it. But what about, what about yourself? How did you, you were from New Orleans, but that's a tough market to break into, and yet you've become kind of the queen of all this. How did you get known in the community that you need to be known in?
1: Well, I started out focusing mainly on bridal gowns with all of my experience from Vera Wang and also in in part of the business plan and how would I make this work. How do I take a product that is extremely labor-intensive, where labor is the most expensive part of what you're doing? What niche would someone spend that kind of money to have a dress that doesn't look like anyone else's, is unique to them, perfectly fit to them? And so that's, that's why I decided to pursue bridal. And being in New Orleans, it was very clear that there was also a need within the debutante market. So I started doing a handful of debutante gowns for Rex and other organizations. And within three years, I was asked to do a queen. And I had two the first year. And then a few years later, it grew until I had as many as a dozen in one year.
2: And with both the Mardi Gras and the bridal side, do people come into you with a set idea of what they want it to look like, or is it uh You know, Suzanne, make me beautiful, uh, you know, come February.
1: Clients come in with everything you just described. I have clients with very specific ideas, a very specific fabric, and I have other clients that come in with a very open mind to what I would suggest. I find that I do my best work with some direction and my own creative freedom combined.
2: Can you tell when they walk in the door which one they're going to be?
1: I don't, I won't know until I sit down and start visiting with them.
2: (laughs) And you know, Eleanor, I ask you kind of the same question. What makes a, a successful client to work with, which are, and then which ones are kind of more difficult? What are some of the instances? I would think, for instance, when you have a house that isn't selling and you have to convince them to lower the price, that would be kind of a, you know, might be a little bit of a battle there.
3: It is difficult. Nobody wants to lower the price. Everybody wants top dollar. So what you have to do is educate them on the market, show them what is sold, show them the comps, and then they eventually get a little realistic and they will lower the price if it sits out there long enough.
2: And what do, what should we look at to determine uh, whether a market is softening? I guess one would be you start to see some prices lowered. The other would be what did uh, maybe takes longer to actually get a transaction?
3: Well, when you get an abundance of homes, right now we're heavy on listings. And it's a buyer's market right now. And, uh, you know, it varies. Uh, for a while there, we were getting multiple. Two years ago, we were getting multiple offers. They want enough inventory. But now we're getting overflow of, you know, the homes in certain price points. And so they can be real picky. And buyers are just being extremely Uh, confused because they have too many choices. So it just takes them longer to make a decision. And then the economic times right now affect it too because they just aren't decisive.
2: Things like the ups and downs of the stock market. Right, all of that that affects it. The
3: rates, everything affects it. Uh, But right now we're heavy
2: on listings. You know what I'm surprised about is I think if we were in a different market like a Phoenix or something you might say well supply is outstripping demand because they're building too many homes but with what you're working with these, these things were built like in 1900 so uh, it must be more on the demand side right the supply side isn't changing overall I guess the supply in terms of what's for sale is changing.
3: Right we're getting more listings out there and then the uh, change in direction. The young millennials and all want everything done. They don't appreciate the older homes as much as my vintage did. We love the old homes and love to renovate. They like something done. It's a moving condition and they like all the amenities. They prefer a stark White House with modern uh, everything done. They don't want to take the challenge
2: I've heard antique people on the show say that, the uh, that they don't want to have their grandparents brown, brown furniture anymore. No, yes,
3: They don't want brown furniture <laughs> and they don't appreciate the beautiful moldings and the millwork that we ho- have in these homes. So it's now taking a more of a special person to buy them.
2: Now, Suzanne and Eleanor, this is the part of the show we... <laughs> your brother-in-law. You're spending some quiet time at home away from work when the phone rings. It's your brother-in-law. Usually he only calls to get a, an invitation to dinner, but this time it's different. This time your brother-in-law has a business proposition for you. Suzanne, your brother-in-law says you're ignoring 50% of the potential market here in New Orleans. Men. Men might not be motivated to spend months getting fitted for a suit that they're only going to wear once, but they're plenty of men here that would be happy if they could find more fashionable clothes that are available here in New Orleans. Your brother-in-law says that with all your contacts in the New York fashion world and the example of your own success in New Orleans, you could entice someone in men's fashion to move down here and raise the bar of the men's fashion scene. Your brother-in-law is even prepared to go spend time in New York and meet some folks if you'd set up the meetings for him and pay his expenses. What do you tell your brother-in-law? Is he on to something? Is there room for a men's fashion industry here in New Orleans?
1: I don't really see a men's fa- fashion industry here in New Orleans because of the, how labor-intensive men's suits are, and there are so many amazing manufacturers in Italy and overseas that can fill that niche. Possibly a great men's retailer could come in, but I don't see there being a place for custom here.
2: Um, I mean, one of the things you just said was that it was so complex. Is it more difficult to make men's clothing than women's clothing? Yes. Wow, I never knew that. If you think, we of, think about it less. Well,
1: think about the collar and the lapel and the pocket and the lining and the inside pockets. And you probably have buttons on and a placket on your sleeve. All of that is labor.
2: I'm going to have more respect for my suit now. This is great. <laughs> now, Eleanor, your brother-in-law says one of these days you're going to want to slow down or even retire. I don't think he's right on this, by the way, (laughs) he says that when that time comes, you can still run your business and make just as much money as you do now if you have your own brokerage. Your brother-in-law's just got his real estate license and he suggests that he go into business with you and launch Farnsworth Realty. Farnsworth Realty will be made up of a bunch of young agents who you handpick and train and your brother-in-law will manage everything else. What do you tell your brother-in-law? Is Farnsworth Realty a good idea?
3: Sounds like a disaster to me, but uh, <laughs> I, I've always been an Indian and not a chief, and I chose to be that way when I first uh, got into the business. I, After about seven years, I won the Diamond Award for selling the most in the city, and at that time, people were saying, go on your own, leave the brokerage company, and it's a lot of responsibility, and it's a lot of insurance needs, and there are all kind of costs that people don't factor into. Uh, the real estate industry. And I just didn't want to farm my own company, so I, I tell my brother-in-law, no, I prefer just to be out there producing. <laughs>
2: well, you're a great Indian, by the way, is what uh, <laughs> you... <laughs> I <laughs> like
1: <laughs> being an Indian. <laughs> I was very happy as an Indian in New York, and I started this business because I wanted to live in New Orleans more than I wanted to own a business.
2: And what was it? I mean, you certainly were in the fashion hub. What was it that made you say, I want to go home.
1: My mom and my dad and my sisters and my nephews and past Jan and everything about family that was special to me and unique that didn't exist in New York.
2: Let me ask you each a question. Um, You look like the kind of people who would gladly, you know, share advice. Uh, If um, a young man or woman, maybe probably a woman, came to you and said, I'm just starting out in this business, let's assume they weren't going to be direct competitors, Uh, what would you tell them? I'll start with Suzanne. What would you... They come into your, into your place there and sit down. What advice would you give them? Well, the I
1: feel if anyone is truly interested in pursuing fashion, they should learn how to sew. You may never have a job as a seamstress for sewing but the more you know about sewing and creating a garment the more successful you will be as a designer and the more flexibility you'll have in your work whether it's like me creating custom garments with a small staff or you're a designer in a huge company and you're negotiating a production contract you would know how it's actually made so I always tell young people learn to sew.
2: Now I bet they would think that that's not the sexy part of the business but it, you're saying it's it's key to the rest of it.
1: There are so many people who want to be in the sexy part of the business. The reason why I was extremely successful and sought after in New York was because I had a great sewing background, I had a great technical background. So I was valued in New York for my ability to look at a drawing and give them a garment that looked just like it. Because I could do the draping, I could do the pattern making, I could direct the sewers, I could direct the cutters, I could recognize mistakes, I had knowledge in construction to help them decide how to create this garment. And not very many people can do that.
2: You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Peter Raschuti. I'm talking with fashion designer and manufacturer Suzanne Perrone and realtor Eleanor Farnsworth. Eleanor, uh, I know this must happen to you all the time because there's all these people just getting their license and, uh, and there's so many realtors, some of which make a great living, some probably don't do, do as well. If, if they come up to you, what do you tell them?
3: I tell them to start out with the basics go from the ground up. It takes a while. You have to develop your clientele. Uh, Like when I started out, I had two open houses every week for another agent who was a major agent, and you've just got to go in the trenches, and it's best to find someone that you respect and let them mentor you, and then you can move on. I've had lots of assistants who are now, I guess, competitors who have started out, and they learned it, liked it, you have to like it and it's best to get your feet wet and dive in and see how hard it really is to go out there and get those listings and get the clients because it's work.
2: So you have to like it. It wouldn't be uh, just just going in for the money.
3: No, you have to like real estate. And the people that succeed in real estate really enjoy the architecture, they enjoy people, and you meet exciting people along the way. And it's a challenge though, because when you first start out, you don't have any listings and you don't have any clients. And so you have to build your base and start from somewhere. And so it's best to learn under someone that is already in the
2: field. And in these 39 years, a lot has changed, but most recently, the, the online uh, options, uh, Zillow and things like that, how are you confronting that?
3: Well, uh, you have to confront it because they always are on there, and they're always calling, and usually they have the wrong information because Zillow cannot be monitored by us. So therefore, they sometimes post the wrong pictures of homes, and all people will call you and say well I saw your, this house listed and you're saying this price you're saying three million and they're saying two million and Redfin is saying it's only worth five hundred thousand and so you there's a lot of misleading information out there but you just have to go with it and um, work with it but we deal with the MLS so we put all of all listings if you're with a brokerage you put them all in MLS and usually that is the correct form of advertising and the right information
2: and Suzanne, you, uh, everybody seems to be dealing with internet and less personal uh, ways of selling, but you would seem somewhat immune from that to a point. Is that, would that be correct?
1: Well, there are definitely plenty of people who see my work on social media, but my, the way I reach my clients is at the events. There's, not, there's no better way to reach a client than for them to see a bride walking into the church or a queen walking onto the ball floor.
2: And Eleanor, I mean, in a way, it's kind of the same way. I would imagine a lot of your work is not only repeat business, but referrals.
3: Exactly. That is the major part. I know when Freeport McMoran moved down here, I sold to one Freeport executive, and then I inherited all these Freeport executives. (laughs) And I was driving down to the Meridian Hotel, picking up these guys every day. It was the International Hotel. And I would pick them up, and the doorman finally said, what do you do for a living? And because every day I had a different man in my car, driving him around when they made that car rumors get started.
2: In every grand institution, even one as magical as Mardi Gras or as majestic as the Garden District, there is a place where creativity meets business. At that juncture, you find a human being, a person who is responsible for making the magic happen. Suzanne and Eleanor, you're both great examples of the magician behind the curtain, the person who works in the background to allow beauty and pageantry to take center stage. It's been great to have you both come out from behind the curtain and join me for lunch here today. Thank you both for taking the time to be part of Out to Lunch. Enjoyed it. It
1: was a pleasure.
2: My guests in Out to Lunch today have been Eleanor Farnsworth, realtor at Gardner Realtors, and Suzanne Perrone St. Paul, owner and designer of Suzanne Perrone. You can find out more about Eleanor and Suzanne by following the links on our website, itsneworleans.com. The producer of our show is Grant Morris, our technical producer is Eric Merle, and our researcher is Maggie Mendel. You can listen to the show and to past episodes of Out to Lunch wherever you get podcasts, including Spotify, and at itsneworleans.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsneworleans.com and It's New Orleans' Facebook page. These photos were taken today by Jill LaFleur. You can find more of Jill's photos at LaFleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and WWNO 89.9 FM. I'm Peter Raschuti. Thanks for joining me. I look forward to meeting you again next week around the table here at Commander's Palace for more business New Orleans style on Out to Lunch lunch.
0: Out to Lunch is recorded live over lunch at Commander's Palace in New Orleans. Commander's Palace serves lunch Monday to Friday, jazz brunch on Saturday and Sunday with live music, and dinner seven nights a week. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForman.com. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones-Walker. Established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a Comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Basics Swim and Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie. The It's New Orleans Happy Hour Podcast. And by Orange Theory Fitness, delivering fitness results for a healthier world.